enveloped him then, his mouth suddenly filling with sand and grit, as he tripped for the first of many times, sprawling face down on the hard, gravel-strewn desert floor. He had struggled to his feet, gasping for breath, the ancient rationale of the linen cloth that swathed his head and face, the howley, all too obvious. He had fashioned the howley when he abandoned the car, leaving only a slit for his eyes, and feeling somewhat silly, with clear air and temperatures only in the upper sixties Fahrenheit. Now he desperately needed its protection. His breathing came hard, the heavy air drawing in particles of dust and sand so tiny that even the cloth couldn't filter them out completely. He could taste the desert, even if he couldn't see it, an alkali taste of bitter grit. It was pitch dark now and past midnight, the relentless shrieking sandstorm more ominous than before. The man sat down to think, pulling his knees up instinctively, his head down, his back turned to the onslaught of the wind, eyes closed tightly beneath the white linen. His feet were numb and his back ached, but there was soft sand beneath his buttocks, a relief from the small rocks and hard-pan surface that alternated with sand and gravel and the Al-Hajara the northern reaches of the Arabian desert. His mind racing, weakened by fear, he struggled to examine his situation in the abstract, willing himself to use the practiced discipline of his scientific mind, define the elements of the problem, probe for a hypothesis, test the hypothesis. When the sun came again, the temperatures would top 38 Celsius, or 100 degrees Fahrenheit, to the Americans occupying one-third of his country. He could last a week without food, but how long without water? If he was truly off course, he could wander for days without finding the tiny Saudi outpost he had so carefully targeted on his map of the southern Iraqi desert. He had abandoned his car hours ago in order to stay undetected. A car could be seen kicking up dust plumes for miles— a solitary nomad would be all but invisible. The man tried to peer at his hands, which were shaking, but the cloth of the howley got in the way. He was hardly a nomad, of course, and he knew it. The desert in the mild temperatures of springtime had not scared him as it would an experienced man. One hundred kilometers or so on foot, some sixty miles, had seemed easy. He had never figured on a sandstorm— or on losing his only compass and his spare water bag in a terrifying fall down the side of a wadi, a dry stream bed. He knew he must focus his mind, and when he did so, the proposition seemed simple, although the words echoing in his head were Oxfordian English instead of his native Arabic, and that disturbed him, as if his survival depended on thinking in Arabic. Either I'm within twenty degrees of my original course, he concluded, or I'm doomed. He tugged at a corner of the howley, opening a slit for his left eye, as he held his digital watch inches away and pressed the button activating a tiny light. The irony made him chuckle through the gnawing fear. A tiny vestige of Western technology, obediently serving a Western-educated Arab, now in real danger of dying, because he'd never learned to be an Arab. It read, 1.43 a.m., he got to his feet just as suddenly and positioned the wind on his right sleeve as a physical compass, resuming the same steady pace as before, a renewed confidence pushing him on. There was no legitimate cause for panic. He could not possibly be off course more than twenty degrees, and there was an east-west pipeline south of the border he couldn't miss. 
The monotonous impacts of his footfalls in the blackness, accompanied by the numbing shriek of the wind, was a form of sensory deprivation, blocking out all other inputs, leaving his conscious mind free to wander, painting vivid mental images before him. The bedroom of his house in the southern suburbs of Baghdad loomed before him, with Salia, his wife, and their two sons and one daughter huddled together there. The pain of missing them was just below the surface, but he suppressed it. There had been no electricity for weeks in Baghdad, and less water, and he had been able to visit them just once since the American attack began. His initial terror at reports that the capital was under siege had given way rapidly to a sort of confidence. Whatever horrors the Americans had planned for Hussein, wiping out the Iraqi population was not among them. By the time he had disobeyed orders and struggled over shattered concrete and clogged highways from Ar-Rutba to be with them for a while, Salia and the children had settled down to a routine of basic existence. He was proud of them. He knew they could survive. But now there was a terrible lie, out there somewhere in the night, that Salia would eventually confront, and there was nothing he could do to prevent it. "'Your husband of eighteen years,' she would be told, was found burned to a cinder beside the road from Arutba to Baghdad. Must have been American bombs, they would say. He probably died instantly. The man stumbled suddenly, righted himself, checked his direction, and trudged on. Day came in the form of a yellowish glow, stronger to his left, and still his feet obediently plopped one in front of the other, sometimes treading over a dune of shifting sand that slid and slithered under his weight, sometimes crashing onto a desert floor as hard as concrete. Thirst was an enemy struggling to consume him. The hours trudged by with depressing monotony as the light brightened and faded to darkness once again. By nine o'clock p.m. the storm had calmed. The clouds suddenly cleared overhead and stars popped out above him, changing his mood to brief elation. He pulled open his howley and scanned the sky, finding the Big Dipper, Orion, and the North Star, and fixing the compass rose around him in his mind. "'Look at the horizon, you idiot,' he roared at himself. "'There should be lights, fires, or something ahead.' He was surely on Saudi soil by now. But pitch darkness was all that beckoned, and the wind was rising once again. By two o'clock a.m. the storm was in full force again, and it was obvious to the man that he was lost in every way. "'I will meet death walking at full speed,' he decided. His pace accelerated to almost a trot as he plunged with renewed purpose into the throat of the sand-laden winds. He could tell that he was dangerously dehydrated now, his emotions floating on the calm seas of a detached mental state— his conscious thoughts occupied with speed and course, as if those were the only reality. He counted his steps diligently, keeping his pace steady and rapid, moving at almost exactly 1.5 meters per second, at the moment his weary body crashed headlong into the metal side of a parked truck. The Saudi sergeant sat bolt upright, cobwebs clearing from his head instantly, aware that something had disturbed the steady moan of the wind and the intermittent clanking of the rusted metal door to the broken-down masonry outpost. His two companions, a lieutenant and a private, still slept. They were from the city. He was a Bedouin who preferred a tent to a cold stone floor. 
He heard nothing more, but that noise had not come from his dream. The sergeant got to his feet and slipped on his sandals, picked up his American M-16 rifle, and padded outside cautiously, taking the sand blast full in the face, before stumbling across the collapsed body of a man on the other side of the truck. Shakir Abbas regained consciousness in a chair, the foul breath of a Saudi soldier assaulting his face, his explanation disbelieved. He heard the Arabic word for spy before being handcuffed and driven into Badana, where he was given a small cup of water and thrown in a filthy cell that reeked of human waste. It seemed endless hours before a higher-ranking Saudi appeared, only slightly more interested in his explanation. This one, too, disappeared, and his frustration grew enormous as he felt the time crawl by, knowing what had to be happening nearly three hundred miles to the north. That schedule would not wait, and neither could he. When at last yet another Saudi officer came down the hall, Abbas summoned his strength, stuck his face through the bars, and, with as much rage as he could muster, yelled at the man. "'You idiot! I have information vital to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia about Saddam Hussein. If you don't take me to military intelligence immediately, your life will soon be worth nothing.' The Saudi gave him the sort of impassive look one gives to a screaming hyena in a zoo. "'At least tell them I'm here,' he tried again. The Saudi moved closer, his eyes impassive. "'Tell whom?' he asked in Arabic. The man felt his shirt. The pen was still there, and perhaps he still had paper. Yes, there it was. He pulled it out and knelt down suddenly, using his knee as a writing board, his hand hastily sketching the design of a particular molecule, along with its chemical description.